There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 40 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is Part 1 of a two-part case. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcast provider. Joyce Byrne and McKinney entered this world on August 6th, 1949. A much-loved only child to her schoolteacher parents Davis and Marilyn McKinney, she was raised in Minneapolis, a small township in the southeastern state of North Carolina. After finishing school, Joyce left home to study drama. She kept the locals up to date with her achievements by writing to the weekly newspaper The Avery Journal who were informed of every triumph or new role Joyce had received, no matter how trivial. They humoured her enthusiasm with small snippets of her accomplishments, with some titled Pirate Sweetheart at East Tennessee State University and Freshman Beauty at the University of North Carolina. In her early twenties, she travelled west across America and relocated to Provo, Utah, just over 40 miles south of the state's capital, Salt Lake City. Much like the state to which it belonged, 
Provo had a considerable and dedicated Mormon community, with its members more formally known as the followers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Joyce McKinney moved into student accommodation outside Brigham Young University, a learning institution supported by the Mormon Church. It was there she converted to Mormonism and was expected to follow the strict code of honour in accordance with Mormon teachings. Along with honourable and virtuous behaviour, students on campus also agreed to refrain from swearing, to not consume drugs and alcohol, abide by a dress code, abstain from extramarital sex, and under no circumstances are they allowed to carry firearms. The building where Joyce stayed was owned by the Osmond family. The 1970s sibling supergroup the Osmonds also heralded from the state fame for its Great Salt Lake, and in 1973 they were at the peak of their popularity, a fact not missed by Joyce McKinney. She had Wayne Osmond, the second oldest of the siblings, in her sights. She was persistent, but he wasn't biting. His mother reportedly said that Joyce was somewhat of a problem. Her intensity had become an issue. Ron Clark, who worked for the Osmonds in their public relations team, said, Joyce McKinney wanted to be close by wherever and whenever possible. Notices were put up to try and deter her from hanging around, warning the 23-year-old about loitering and trespassing. It was only when Wayne Osmond announced his engagement to another woman that Joyce McKinney finally moved on. While in Utah, she twice entered the Miss Provo Beauty Contest. The first year she came second, the next year she ranked third. Joyce tried to register for a third year, but was banned from the competition after she became enraged when discussing her previous year's performance. Joyce felt as though she should have won. The organiser of the beauty contest said, she never actually won the title, and she indicated her displeasure in very strong terms. She was a girl who set her sights on something, and would go to extreme lengths to reach her objective. Joyce McKinney did indeed set her sights higher. She wanted to win Miss World. She attended classes at a modelling school in Salt Lake City, but her seemingly sweet and charming disposition would turn from night to day if she felt someone else was gaining the upper hand. When she discovered she had failed to qualify for the Miss World competition, only getting as far as Miss World Wyoming, this would result in the police being called. Joyce McKinney claimed that her roommate had stolen $300 from her, but not long after officers arrived to investigate the matter, the money mysteriously reappeared. It hadn't been stolen at all. For Joyce McKinney, pageantry had run its course. She returned to Provo, and although upset her dream of being an international beauty pageant winner was now over, she was the proud owner of a new red Chevrolet Corvette sports car, a conciliatory gift from her father. 
In the middle of 1975, while studying for a doctoral degree in drama, Joyce McKinney met undergraduate Kirk Anderson, a 19-year-old practicing Mormon who played trombone in a band called Prodigy. He was six years her junior and a fellow student of Brigham Young University. Kirk had pulled up alongside her at an ice cream shop and at first admired her car. It wouldn't be long until the two became romantically involved. Joyce would later say she lost her virginity to Kirk on a waterbed in her room, but felt guilty about what she had done, and the Mormon elders were eventually informed. She would also claim that after the pair slept together, she fell pregnant with Kirk's baby, but suffered a miscarriage. Towards the end of that year on Christmas Day, Kirk was told he was to be sent to California. Following his indiscretion with Joyce, he was on probation with the Mormon church and had broken off their relationship. He told her he had no intention of marrying her, but Joyce would not let Kirk go. She was angry at the elder's decision, so decided to denounce the Mormon faith. She later said she wasn't sad to leave Utah behind. I didn't like Brigham Young University. The other girls drank, smoked and swore and had pictures of naked men on their walls. It was so hypocritical. Still fixated, Joyce followed Kirk to California. However, her intense pursuit wasn't welcomed. Kirk had reported several instances of harassment to police back in Utah. This included being run off the road in his car, being attacked by a group of unknown assailants, and his car tyres were slashed. It wasn't long before he fled to Salem, Oregon, under an alias, Stephen Lewis Billings. Now in California, Joyce moved to Los Angeles. She needed money to support herself and began looking for acting work. She managed to secure a role as an extra in a crowd scene, but not much else materialised. Looking further afield, she found work as a nude model. The owner of the photography business who employed Joyce's services often recalled her coming into work with two dogs and a cat, but said that after two months she came into work one day demanding her salary be doubled, which she simply couldn't afford. Joyce then branched out, finding her own work by placing a regular advert in a Los Angeles newspaper with the heading Job Wanted. Gorgeous former Miss USA contestant desires work, beauty, brains and talent. PhD in drama and film, model, actress and state beauty queen, 38, 24, 36. A slim, sweet southern blonde. How would you like her to leisurely bathe you, lovingly blow dry and style your hair, then give you a delicious nude massage on her fur-covered waterbed for $100? Or try her fantasy room. Your fantasy is her speciality. Escort service, PR work, acting jobs, nude wrestling and modelling, erotic phone calls, TV, charm school, etc., Mail your fantasy or speciality. 
At the time, she was living with a new boyfriend, Steve Moskowitz, in a flat they shared, though he later confided they never actually became intimately involved. Through her ads, Joyce was making good money, enough after 18 months to hire a private investigator to find Kirk Anderson. She wrote to the detective agency and mentioned her loathing of the Mormon church and Kirk's punishment for their relationship. An extract of the letter read, A Mormon missionary who has gotten a girl pregnant would be in extreme disgrace and bad publicity for their church. Therefore, they would hide and deny this at all costs, so you must never mention me or the pregnancy to any of them. They are cold and hypocritical, as they condemn to hell anyone who is different from them and anyone who does not accept and live their faith. You can never imagine how horrible they treated me when I became pregnant by Kirk. The Mormons put us up before our congregation and scorned us and told Kirk to break our engagement because I had given him my virginity. Kirk unfortunately listened to their wild story, i.e. that I was from Satan and our innocent baby, a child of Satan, born of lust of the flesh, a bastard. They punish Kirk by shearing off his beautiful long hair in a ridiculous crew cut. Unknown to Joyce McKinney, Kirk Anderson had since left America and flown to England for a two-year missionary role in Ewell, Surrey, around 15 miles from the nation's capital. With his probation over, he was to be a personal assistant to the head of the church. Through her private investigator, Joyce discovered this fact, and along with her friend Keith May, a 24-year-old trainee architect, they were going to follow Kirk to England and, in their minds, rescue him from the Mormon church. Using an alias to travel with, Joyce also hired a bodyguard and a pilot, Jackson Shaw, to take them overseas. The bodyguard, Gil Parker, was one of two potential bodyguards Joyce had recruited from Gold's Gym in Los Angeles. The first dropped out even before he stepped foot on the plane. The second, Gil Parker got spooked, and he wanted nothing more to do with Joyce when it was revealed she was travelling with listening devices hidden in a radio. It would also be reported later that even Kirk Anderson's grandmother's telephone had been tapped. Maybe this rescue mission wasn't what it appeared to be, and Gil Parker clearly knew it. When they started surveillance on Kirk Anderson, the pilot, Jackson Shaw, removed himself from the rescue mission too. Kirk didn't seem to be held captive or brainwashed from where he was standing. Now only two remained, Joyce McKinney and Keith May. They employed the services of two London taxi drivers, Dennis French and Kenny Muslow, to ferry them around from place to place until they got their own car. Joyce's paranoia about being seen by one of the Mormon elders was such that she wanted a separate car for each journey. The taxi drivers later admitted to charging McKinney and May way over the odds, 
as soon as they realised she was carrying armfuls of cash in her handbag. Dennis French later said, We con them rotten. Joyce had thousands of pounds to spend, so we thought we would help her. We didn't know what she was planning, just there was this crazy bird wandering around with a sack full of money. One of the two drivers had an Austin Westminster, which they were willing to sell to Joyce, and cost a paltry £75. She had such enthusiasm for the vehicle, the taxi driver jacked up the price to £275. The next day, the group went shopping in London, and Joyce picked up a stereo with a tape deck from Crouch End, some lingerie, a see-through nightie, and a love potion. Dennis French said the last stop on their trip was to a hardware store. Keith May purchased some padlocks in various sizes and two thick chains, one of which was at least four feet in length and another two feet longer. The purchase seemed unusual to the shopkeeper who reportedly quipped, Blimey, what are you locking up tonight? The crown jewels. Taxi driver Dennis French claimed he wasn't aware of what would happen next, but Joyce did express the desire to become pregnant with Kirk Anderson's child. Dennis French exclaimed, Why go to all that bother? I know a dozen blokes that will give you a kid for nothing. The next day, despite the easy money, the cabbies parted ways with Keith May and Joyce McKinney, who were continuing with their rescue attempt. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The now 21-year-old Kirk Anderson was standing outside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Yule, Surrey, on September 14, 1977. He was getting on with his day, but had no idea he was being watched by the woman he had broken off a relationship with in his late teens. Around 1pm, Kirk was approached by someone that was known to him. The man, Bob Bosler, had recently expressed an interest in joining the Mormon church. As Bosler approached Kirk, he jabbed something metal into his ribs. Kirk looked down, it was a 38 revolver. He was ushered into a waiting car and a woman with dark hair was sat in the front seat. It was Joyce McKinney, wearing a wig and holding a gun. Bob Bosler was in fact Keith May. A few moments earlier, a fellow missionary was on his way outside to talk to the potential convert and he saw Kirk and a man armed with what he thought looked like a gun. He watched on as Kirk was bundled into the back of a car, a blanket was thrown over his head before the vehicle drove off. For five hours, Kirk Anderson was held at gunpoint in the back of the car until his captors reached their destination, a cottage in Lower Halstock, Oakhampton in West Devon. Threatened with chloroform, he was forced out of the car and then marched into one of the bedrooms. Kirk had no idea where he was or what was going to happen to him. He was told he was taken there so he and Joyce could sort everything out. Joyce told him she still loved him and wanted to marry him. While Kirk was gone, a number of newspapers reported on the disappearance of the missing woman. Bob Martin, Detective Chief Superintendent with the Surrey Police Force stated, We are very concerned for the safety of Mr. Anderson. The spokesperson for the Mormon church believed Joyce McKinney was involved and said, I know the kidnapping story is bizarre, but we are taking it very seriously. Mr. Anderson was subjected to a considerable amount of sophisticated harassment from this woman in America. Wherever he went in the States, he was always tracked down, presumably by inquiry agents. Later that night at the cottage, Joyce McKinney had lit a roaring wood fire and put on some soothing music. That same song had played two years earlier when she had first slept with Kirk Anderson. She came into the bedroom in lingerie and laid on the bed beside Kirk. He asked her for a back rub. She obliged. But when Kirk felt uncomfortable, and didn't wish things to go any further, 
This is when the situation took a drastic turn for the worse. Joyce left the room and returned with Keith May, who came in with a bag full of ties and chains. At gunpoint, Kirk was tied spread eagle to the bed. He was defenseless and completely unaware that the guns his captors had been using were replicas. After Keith left the room, Joyce tore off Kirk's temple garments, underwear worn by a Mormon as a symbolic protection against the evils of the world. She forcefully performed fellatio and then got on top of him. Joyce hoped intercourse would result in a pregnancy. Kirk Anderson was held in the cottage for three days. What was said exactly isn't known. However, Kirk Anderson tried to convince his captors that he was a willing participant and was friendly and calm throughout his abduction. He told McKinney and May that he really should return to the church to let them know he was renouncing his faith after what he had done. His plan worked. He was driven to central London and set free. Kirk Anderson immediately contacted the authorities. After Kirk reported his ordeal to the police, Joyce McKinney and Keith May were now fugitives. To aid in the search, authorities released the aliases they were known to use. Paul William Van Dusen and Bob Bosler for May, with McKinney using a string of names including Kath Van Bear, Catherine Van Dusen, Mrs. Bosler and Heidi Kratzer. The police were almost certain the pair had not left the country. Keith May was described as 5 feet 10, slim build, with grey-blue eyes and streaked sandy-coloured mid-length hair which turned up at the back. McKinney was noted as a very attractive blonde with a pronounced southern accent. Some distinctive marks included a triangular-shaped scar on the right side of her face near her jawline and a curved scar behind her right ear. Police mentioned she could also be wearing a large pair of wire-rimmed spectacles with extremely thick lenses and a dark brown wig similar to the one Kirk Anderson saw her wearing outside the church. On the afternoon of September 19, 1977, Joyce McKinney and Keith May were pulled over in a red Vauxhall Victor by police at a roadblock on the A30 at Crockenwell in West Devon. A sting operation had been set up after Kirk Anderson contacted his abductors, telling them he wanted to meet. Following their arrests, the pair were driven the 13 miles to Hevertree Road Police Station in Exeter, where officers from Epsom came to collect them for questioning. After the press heard of the arrests, Joyce McKinney was pictured crying in the back of a police van, clinging onto the window bars with one hand and holding a message on a torn piece of paper with the other. It read, I am innocent. Please help me. Kirk framed me. 
before it ended. Give me an interview. Joyce was again photographed being transported in a police vehicle, holding a second note that read, Kirk left with me willingly. Willingly was written in capitals and underlined. He fears excommunication for leaving his mission and made up this kidnap-rape story. In an interview, Joyce McKinney told the Surrey Police Chief Superintendent that she had not kept Kirk Anderson hostage and spoke about the first time she met him. She said, My heart did sort of flip-flops. I never forget the first quiver when I looked at him. I was so much in love. I drove 40 miles each day just to have lunch with him. She then described in depth her first sexual experience with Kirk Anderson. She spoke of how scared she was, and Kirk allegedly told her, I want to see your blonde-haired babies running around the house. Joyce would go on to claim that after they had slept together, Kirk started acting strange like he was going into a trance then he left, and I was hurt. He said I was not worthy of him. I was getting panicky, she said. Upon finding out about the illegitimate pregnancy, she insisted a bishop in the Mormon church advised her to get an abortion. She refused, but said she miscarried when she was attacked in the street. Joyce then went on to describe the events that unfolded in the cottage in Devon. Mr. Anderson laid willingly while I tied him up. If I had not... This little 120-pound girl could not have tied up a 250-pound, 6-foot, 2-inch man. She claimed that Kirk said, Put on something sexy for me. Joyce continued, I put on a sexy nightgown and went into the bedroom with him. I took a shower, and when I came back he was under the covers, nude, so you know who did the seducing. Referring to her body measurements, Joyce said, I don't have to beg for boys' services. I am 38, 24, 36. I don't beg. I was Miss Wyoming. Throughout the interview, Joyce did not draw attention to the fact she and her accomplice were armed with chloroform and replica revolvers. Both Joyce McKinney and Keith May were charged with kidnapping, assault and possessing imitation firearms and chloroform. With each journey to the courtroom, Joyce cried, screamed and pleaded with photographers, please, please tell the truth, please, please ask Christians to pray for me. On October 13th, there was a short pre-trial hearing. Joyce McKinney and Keith May arrived following one of McKinney's all-too-familiar outbursts to the press outside. She instructed her defence counsel, Stuart Elgrod, to request the reporting ban be lifted for the court case. Joyce was now a 70s tabloid sensation. The words blonde and beauty queen were paired with her name far more frequently than accused kidnapper and rapist. Elgrod made it absolutely clear 
that all charges would be disputed. He said, Passion was the motive, not the classic kidnapping for a ransom. He then claimed the kidnap allegations were a culmination of an infatuation for Kirk Anderson. He said, Anything that took place while they were together took place not only with his active consent, but on occasion at his instigation. Elgrod put forward a request for bail. I have raised the spectre of passion, and now I raise the spectre of compassion, he said. I very much fear that continued incarceration would have the greatest personal effect on Miss McKinney. Detective Chief Superintendent Bill Hucklesby voiced his concern the defendants would abscond as they entered the country using false passports. He said, The offences charged involve violence, the use of leg shackles, handcuffs, imitation firearms, and a mixture of ether and chloroform which... Miss McKinney has indicated in a statement to police that she intended to use in the kidnap of Kirk Anderson. We have evidence that she has suicidal tendencies and it is for her own protection that I ask she be remanded in custody. Bail was denied. A week later, the pair were again in court. This time, Joyce was represented by solicitor Anthony Edwards who spoke about her and said, She was converted to the Mormon faith, but became disillusioned. She is very much afraid of retribution. She feels Mormons will take on her for going back on her conversion, but more so because she has tried to see a missionary who was training, and who, at this stage, should not be associating with women. Edwards put forward a request for bail, again explaining away the false passport and the documents using the names of eight different people Joyce McKinney had in her possession. The solicitor said she had used the documents to escape the Mormons and to see Kirk Anderson, who she was infatuated with. Once again, Detective Chief Superintendent Bill Hucklesby was present and requested bail should not be granted. Joyce McKinney's obsession with Kirk Anderson had not waned, and DCS Hucklesby feared she would, quote, interfere with his life. Her application was refused, and as she was put into a police van to be taken to Holloway Prison, she shouted to newsmen, read Psalm 109, verses 1 through 12. Part of it reads... For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. A committal hearing was held in late November to decide if there was enough evidence to bring the case before a jury. Joyce entered the courtroom sobbing. Facing charges of kidnapping and unlawful imprisonment, Neil Dennison Prosecuting read sections of Joyce McKinney's statement to Epsom magistrates describing the first night in the cottage. The prosecution argued that McKinney was a stalker whose all-consuming passion had led her to abduct Anderson and force him to have sex. It never occurred to Joyce that Kirk didn't love her until she read his police statement. 
a barrister for the Crown read out Anderson's submission. She grabbed my pyjamas from just around my neck and tore them from my body. The chains were tight and I could not move. She proceeded to have intercourse. I did not want it to happen. I was very upset. Though there was no financial ransom, Kirk Anderson said there was a ransom of sorts. Joyce had kept him there so she could become pregnant with his child since he wouldn't marry her. He would go on to provide five hours of testimony to Epsom magistrates. Kirk Anderson was asked why he didn't run away. He replied, I had made a distinct plan of how I was going to get away, but it wasn't by running away or escaping. It was by pretending to cooperate. Physically running away, I didn't have a chance. He was quizzed if he found Joyce McKinney a beautiful woman. Kirk said, I wasn't necessarily attracted to her. It was the car I noticed first. She was driving a Corvette. She professed love and the desire to marry me, but I didn't take it very seriously. Kirk recounted what happened after he was kidnapped. Miss McKinney came into my room. There was a fire in the fireplace and some music. She was wearing a negligee. She came to me and was lying on the bed. I mentioned to her I would like her to give me a back rub. She proceeded to give me a back rub. I realised she wanted to have intercourse. I said I would not. She left the room and came back a few minutes later. Joyce McKinney returned with Keith May, who at the time Kirk Anderson believed was called Bob Bosler. He had a red flight bag with chains and ropes, leather straps and padlocks, things such as that. I thought they were just going to restrain me. They tied my left leg, then my right leg, then both hands to opposite sides of the bed. I was on my back spread-eagled. I couldn't move. She grabbed my pyjamas and tore them off my body. Bosler left the room. She proceeded to have intercourse. What was your state of mind when it did happen? Anderson was asked. I was very upset. Physically, you were in the right state for intercourse? Yes. What put you in that physical state? She had oral sex, Kirk Anderson replied. Anderson was questioned about his feelings after the assault. I became very angry. I asked her what she wanted from me. I lost my temper to such an extent I picked her up and threw her across the bed. She said she was going to get what she wanted from me, and that was another child. She said she might have to keep me there for another month. She thought she had missed a period. Asked about what sort of terms he was on with McKinney and May when they returned to London, and Kirk Anderson replied, On the face of it, friendly. I convinced them that what I had done was so serious I should leave the mission. During the hearing, Anderson was cross-examined by Stuart Elgrod, Joyce McKinney's counsel. He asked how it would have felt being excommunicated from the church. 
Anderson replied. It would have been a large disappointment and then voiced his scepticism of Joyce McKinney's initial pregnancy claim. Elgrod showed the court Kirk Anderson's torn and tattered pyjamas. His one piece of underwear, a symbol of his chastity, had been burnt in a fire at the cottage. Along with his nightwear, a piece of blue rope found at the scene had been stained with a red liquid. Kirk Anderson said he believed the marks were blood from Joyce McKinney, who had managed to cut her hand. Keith May's solicitor, Robert Marshall Andrews, suggested Anderson leaving Joyce McKinney in America was due to pressure from the Mormon church. Marshall Andrews spoke about McKinney's claims that she had been physically attacked and that she maintained it was the result of the church. The solicitor also spoke of a session McKinney claimed she had with a psychiatrist before coming to England. McKinney said the psychiatrist had suggested bondage as a way to relieve Kirk Anderson's guilt surrounding sex. It was not clear if McKinney told the professional that they were not in a relationship. Kirk Anderson said of the alleged session, I think she said I was sexually repressed. The subject of the back rub he received on the bed came up. Anderson was questioned why he asked for one. It was because I wanted one, he responded. Stuart Elgrod, McKinney's counsel, suggested to him that it could be seen as a highly erotic act. Anderson responded, It could have been if I'd have wanted intercourse. My mum gives pretty good back rubs. Was your mum a former beauty queen? asked Elgrod. Kirk Anderson replied, My mum could show affection by giving a back rub, but I don't have intercourse with my mum. Stuart Elgrod then turned and faced the court. He stated, Do the facts properly support the conclusion that this was in fact a kidnapping, followed by unlawful imprisonment, followed by the pretense of cooperation to secure his release? Or is it reasonably possible that this was a rescue from the Mormon church in order to save Anderson's face with the church and disguise the fact that he had gone willingly? Defendant Keith May told the court that he was chosen to help Joyce McKinney because he held a pilot's license. She planned for him to whisk her and Kirk Anderson off on their unofficial honeymoon after they had consummated their relationship once more. He also said that Joyce wanted the cottage where they took Kirk to be fitted with iron bars. When that wasn't possible, May went to a hardware store to obtain the chains and padlocks. According to May... Joyce McKinney was already the owner of handcuffs and leather straps from her time as a sex worker. Joyce McKinney's solicitor Anthony Edwards told Epsom magistrates that his client feared revenge from the Mormon church. He said, Fear is not only in her mind, she had a car seriously damaged. She believes by Mormons.
When Joyce McKinney finally sat in the dock, she told the court, I've been trying for three months to get word to the outside world. I have been played up as a very wicked and perverted woman. It is not true. I would like to tell you a little bit about my background and life. Joyce talked about her life, careful to paint herself as a woman of moral virtue. She spoke of the distaste she felt for the other girls at Brigham Young University, who drank and had posters of male celebrities on their walls. She said, I didn't expect this at all. The men were wolves. I was in a state of culture shock. I prayed for a special boy who would come into my life, and that is where Kirk comes in. Furthermore, my father walked in on us, and if what the Bible says is true, Kirk owes my dad some money, 50 shekels. My father still hasn't been paid. She claimed that when Kirk Anderson first saw her in Yule, Surrey on September 14th, he spoke the words, Hi, pint-sized. Are you going to take on the whole Mormon army? Joyce claimed Kirk was aware the guns were fake and she didn't use them to scare him. They were meant to scare other people, she said. I loved him so much that if anybody had tried to shoot him, I would have stepped in front of him and stopped the bullet. I wouldn't let anyone harm a hair on his head. She accused Kirk of simply wanting a holiday from his role as a missionary with sex and food. She suggested many people pass by or in the vicinity of the cottage and it was possible Kirk Anderson could have left at any point. Joyce exclaimed to the court, Ladies and gentlemen, you are looking at the first woman in history who has been on trial for rape. Addressing those at the hearing, she then moved on to the topic of Kirk Anderson's sexual life. Kirk was raised by a very dominant mother. He has a lot of guilt about sex because his mother has overprotected him all his life. He has to be tied up to have an orgasm. I loved Kirk so much that I would have skied down Mount Everest in the nude with a carnation up my nose. While an interesting way to end a committal hearing, the case was postponed for a week before the court reconvened. Joyce once again took to the stand and spoke to the court for an hour. This man, she said looking at Kirk, has imprisoned my heart with false promises of love and marriage and a family life. He's had me cast into prison for three months for a kidnap he knows he set things up for. Joyce continued trying to appeal to the sympathies of the court. My father has a bad heart, and this may be the last Christmas I spend with him. Please, please don't let Kirk imprison me any further. I want nothing more to do with him. His mother can give him his back rubs from now on, but don't let him imprison me any further. Speaking softly through tears, she said, let me pick up the pieces of my life. Working on behalf of Joyce McKinney, Stuart Elgrod said, What makes Miss McKinney tick? Neither hate nor anger, nor thoughts of retribution, but a deep-seated, sincere love.
against the advice of Detective Chief Superintendent Bill Hucklesby and the rest of the police force. Joyce McKinney and Keith May were released on bail and a trial was set for the following year. Both defendants were bound to stay in England and were ordered not to contact Kirk Anderson, go near a Mormon church or apply for any travel documents. The bizarre story which came out at the magistrate's court was more like the plot of a soap opera than court evidence, which the press followed with glee. The two were due to face trial at the Old Bailey next month. They were accused of kidnapping a Mormon missionary, Kirk Anderson. At a preliminary hearing, Anderson had alleged that he'd been chained to a bed and forced to have sex with Miss McKinney. After their arrest, the couple were placed in custody, but later they were The case brought to light the fact that a woman could not be charged with rape. An MP and barrister John Lee asked for reform, saying, There's no doubt that a woman can rape a male, particularly a youngster. If a man had been the predator, a charge of rape would have ensued. This is the end of episode 40. To hear more about the trial, the fallout from the case, and information on those involved, please tune in next time. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. You can now pre-order your copy of our new book, They Walk Among Us, available on Thursday, May 30th, 2019, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.